Okay, folks, we are entering into our second unit in our first section of Getting to Know God. Uh, Most of you here the first time, if you weren't, uh, section one is a question that we're answering. Here's the question. What can we know about who God is? What can we know about God? God wants to be known, so what is it that we can know about Him, and why is it so hard? These are the things that we're going to be talking about the next few weeks And our specific uh, title in Unit 1.2 is Knowing the Unknowable One. All right, there's a tension in the Christian faith. There's a tension that we have to reconcile, okay? And that tension is this. We need to solve a sovereign mystery. Here's the sovereign mystery. We have a God who is both unknowable and knowable at the same time. All right, we have a God who is so transcendent that He is utterly unknowable. And yet He condescends to be with us and to, to reveal Himself to us in such a way that there are certain aspects of Him that we can know and that we should know if we're going to have a relationship with Him. So how do we reconcile this tension of God being unknowable and yet knowable at the same time? Scripture talks about this all the time. In the book of Job, you'll see in your notes, in Job eleven seven through 8, it says, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? So God is beyond our understanding. And yet, as Christians, we receive a promise. God gave us this promise in the Old Testament, a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and a new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 through 34, you may know the beginning, but pay attention to the end. Jeremiah says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. All right, so think about this for a second. One of the great realities of being a Christian is that you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. So I do not have to say, know the Lord, because if you're Christian in some capacity, you should know God because He lives inside of you. Now, as Christians, we have to admit, we don't know God like we want to know God. And why is that? We're going to answer that tonight. And we may not love the answers that we come up with, but the Bible tells us if we're truly Christian and we don't really know God, there's a reason why. And it's something we need to change in our own lives. But that's what we're going to talk about here in just a few moments. So that is how we're going to try to solve a sovereign mystery. Moving on to number two, distinguishing drops from the ocean. So I prayed about some illustrations to help us think about God and His size and how we can know Him, but yet there are still aspects of God that we'll never fully know. And one of those illustrations, I thought, is the Pacific Ocean. It's the biggest body of water on earth. All right, I found out that it measures 63 million square miles. And there are areas that we can't even get to the bottom of it so deep. Yet, let's just say, for instance, that I have a desire to know something about the Pacific Ocean, so I extract from the ocean some drops of water. All right, from those drops of water, I can legitimately measure and see what the Pacific Ocean is, but there is no container that I could fully contain even 1%, 0.0.1% of the Pacific Ocean in any one container. Well, this is what we need to know about God. We need to know that there's not one aspect of God, not one, not His love, 
not His holiness. There's not one aspect that we can fully know. And theologians call this the incomprehensibility of God. Now, here's what it is and here's what it isn't. It is not that you can't know anything about God because we can know something about God. He revealed Himself to us through the Holy Spirit and through the Word, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, and the Bible, the Word printed and written. But incomprehensibility means there's no aspect of God you could ever fully know because He's so transcendent, He will not let us put Him in a box. And guess what? Human beings want to put God in a box. Do we not? We have a desire to say that we can know everything about God because if we can know everything about God, we can control Him and we can still be the God of our own life. But if He's beyond our understanding, our only response is to worship and praise because He's so transcendent. So I want us to think about uh, our understanding of God as drops in the ocean. All right. As we continue to read the Bible and follow God and the Spirit reveals things about God that we didn't fully understand, it's like we're extracting another drop from the ocean. But let us not have a jar full of drops and say, I know all there is to know about God. Because we never will. Even when we're with Him in an unfiltered relationship in all of eternity for those of us who are born again and are with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. He is incomprehensible. Now, uh, one of, a great theologian named Greg Allison who works at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. He wrote a book, great book. It's called 50 Core Truths of the Christian Faith. And here's what he said. He said there's basically two reasons why God's incomprehensible for us as humans. First, we are finite creatures and we can never fully un- understand an infinite God. You know how I realize this? Whenever I'm teaching kids that God is eternal, that he never had a beginning and he doesn't have an end, I, I notice that kids will often say, well, when did... When did God, when was he born? He wasn't born. Well, he had to start sometime. No, he didn't have to start. He stands outside of time and space. And everything that we understand as human beings, we understand in time and space because we're time-space creatures. So there's a, there's a limit to how we can fully understand God because he, he stands outside of the boundaries of the limit of the human mind. Yet at the same time, He still meets us where we are and uses terms and reveals through His Son and through the written Word enough about Him that we can understand. He does say things that we can understand. So the second reason why He is absolutely uh, incomprehensible is that as human beings, since the time of the fall in Genesis 3, our minds are not what they could be. Do You know, scientists have said we as human beings... I don't know what the percentages are, but the, the amount of our brains that we actually use is a fraction of what God created the human mind to be. But ever since sin entered the world, our entire being is depraved and limited. And one of the ways that we're limited is in our minds. All right, Sin basically incapacitates the full potential of the human brain. It really does. We only know and see a fraction of what we could had we never sinned. And that should excite you as a Christian for two reasons. Number one, when you're born again and the Spirit of God begins to change you, one of the things that He does is He begins to open your mind in ways that wasn't open before. You know how I know that as your pastor? I'm 39 years old and I, didn't, I don't think I had less than 10 books in my possession when I was 27 and got saved. And now I have a thirst for reading and for learning in such a way my brain will not shut off at night. I believe that there were complete areas of my brain that were dormant before I became a Christian. 
But what happened was the Spirit of God began to open those resources, and now I hunger. I hunger. And it's nothing compared to what we'll experience in the new heavens and new earth when God gives us a new resurrected body. Because when that happens, what I think is going to happen is because we're going to be gathered around the throne worshiping Him, He's going to open up new faculties in our brain to be able to understand and experience Him in a whole new way. And it will lead us to worship Him in a way we've never worshipped Him before. So those are the two reasons why God is incomprehensible. We are finite space-time creatures, and God is infinite and stands outside of time and space, so we can't fully understand that yet. And the second part is because of sin, our brain is limited in what it is that we can understand. But the good news is God is working on us. And as Christians, if we hunger for Him and we thirst for Him, I believe that He opens those faculties up that we can understand Him in a different way. I also want to say before we move on to point three that the truth of God is spiritually discerned as well as intellectual. Here's what I mean by that. Okay, in this room right now, there are people that have incredible intellectual capacity. All right, in this room, uh, we have uh, managers and executives and administrators. In our church, we have CPAs and we have lawyers, and they have incredible brains and, and gifts that God has given them. But yet, sometimes, some of the people in this room that know the word the best and that know God the most are maybe not people who were the most successful in the professional world, but they're, they're people that have wonderful spiritual discernment because they've been faithful to the information that God has already given them. All right, how many times have you seen that? You have like a, 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 you know, a custodian or uh, someone who you know, maybe did not have the highest public education or, or secondary education or uh, they don't have a college degree, but man, they know God. Because knowing God is spiritual as much as it is intellectual. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So I want us to be thinking about that. All right, so if he's incomprehensible, which means we cannot know even one aspect of him, we can't know everything about. We can't know everything about his love. We can't know everything about his holiness. But we can know something. And that brings me to number three. Savoring what he has shared. What my hope is, as we go through this study the next few weeks and months together, is that we'll stop and savor what we can know about God and let that transform our lives. You can know something about God, and that can lead you to worship Him. And as you do, you'll grow in what you know. You will grow in what you know. Um, you know, I, didn't, I forgot to read the quote in point two, but let me read this quote from Augustine before we move into uh, another quote that I want to share. Augustine said, uh, We are speaking of God. Is it any wonder if you do not comprehend? For if you comprehend, it is not God you comprehend. To attain some slight knowledge of God is a great blessing. To comprehend Him, however, is impossible. We can't fully comprehend it, but one thing Augustine did say, to attain some slight knowledge of God is a great blessing. All right, so as we're in number three, savoring what He has shared, let's say Let's, let's, let's agree with each other that God has revealed enough about him that we can actually know aspects of God. How did he do that? He did it through divine revelation. We're going to talk about revelation more next week. But God, first of all, through nature, we call that general revelation. 
God has revealed that he exists, all right? If you walk outside and you see the blue sky and you see that you see the grass is green and you see the beautiful animals and the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, you have to look at that and say someone created this with intention. Intelligent design is what their Christians in the scientific world are now saying. All right, God did this with intention. So when we look at the universe, we know somebody created it. All right, when, I, when, when my daughter was born, I had a, a new understanding that a God exists. That whole process of my wife going through nine months of pregnancy and the baby being born and the emotional and spiritual connection that I immediately had and the understanding that I had that this was my daughter, but it really wasn't my daughter, it's God's daughter. You know what I mean? This is all this proof that God gives us over and over that, that, that He is the creator of the universe and what He does, He does with intention. But that's not the only thing. If, if all God did was give us nature, we could know that he exists, but we couldn't know anything specifically about him. So he reveals himself specifically through the word. All right. In the Old Testament, he spoke through prophets. Eventually, what he spoke through prophets was written down. And that became the scriptures. And in the New Testament, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh. So Jesus would say to his disciples who did not fully understand this, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He revealed the truth of God through becoming human. All right, this is what Jesus did. That is revelation. Next week, we're going to talk about the specifics of that revelation. But through the revelation, through the written word, the Bible, and the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see that the word, we can know God. We can't know everything about him, but we can know enough about him to have a special, intimate relationship with our creator. All right? We can know him rightly, and we can worship him rightly in spirit and truth. So to take point two and point three together, let's say we can never know God fully, but we can know God truly. And we need to savor that like a piece of cheesecake. All right? Now, let me make application here. I want you to think about reading the Bible the way that you think about that piece of cheesecake, okay? The Bible is meant to be savored bite by bite, all right? None of us sit down, most of us anyway, that don't have a a weird relationship with food. Most of us would not sit down and try to eat an entire cheesecake in one sitting. It's too rich. Can't do it. But what happens with a lot of people, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, when I try to change habits, I try to change 15 things at once, and I crash and burn. I'm that guy that gets off the couch and tries to run a 5K, and my lungs are burning quickly. All right, so one of the things I notice in church is people who've never read the Bible say, I'm going to read the whole Bible in just a few months. Can I tell you something? That's not how the Bible's meant to be read. Yes, I do think it's fruitful in 12 months uh, if you can somehow, if you're good with a reading plan, and some people in this room have done a great job with that to read through the Bible in 12 months. But I'll tell you, two years ago, I had a woman come to to my office who was new to the church, new to the faith, and she said, I need to know God and I need to know His Word, so I'm on a 90-day reading plan. I'm going to read the whole Bible in 90 days. And I said to her, I admire your desire to know God, but that is not a fruitful exercise because that would be like sitting down and trying to eat a whole cheesecake in one sitting every time you sat down. You can't do it. It's not meant to be done that way. So an image I want you to put in your mind is you get to know God. The primary way to get to know him is through his written word, all right? And the way that we do that is we savor. God has really helped me to slow down and say, you know what? I would love to read 15, 20 chapters of scripture a day and say that I got through the whole Bible in X amount of days. 
But on a good day, if, I, if things are going the way I want them to and I don't get you know, interruptions or you know, things that you didn't plan for, a good day for me is five chapters of Scripture. I typically read two chapters uh, chronologically from wherever I'm at in the Bible. Then I read two Psalms. I read um, one proverb. And it's easy to know which proverb because I read it according to the day of the month. There's 31 proverbs, uh, 30 days, most, most months, 31 some others. On the leap year, you've got to really do some work that, that last day of the month to catch up. But um, basically, five chapters. And in five chapters, every, every morning, I've been writing in a journal for several weeks now, and I just feel like God is really pressing into me. And He's saying, savor what I'm telling you. Take some time and chew on it all day long. Like a piece of cheesecake. Every bite is rich. Take your time and enjoy it. This is one of the reasons that we don't know God. Do you know how rich the Scriptures are? Uh, I laugh when uh, Brother Eddie said, I don't know how you got all that out of Malachi chapter 2 this morning in the, in the service. Well, guess what? I had a lot of notes that I skipped over. The reason why I had a lot to talk about was because I spent a whole week chewing on a piece of cheesecake named Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. One of the things we don't do is, as readers of the Bible, we don't do enough observation and the meditation. There's an exercise in uh, this... Um, one theologian named Howard Hendricks, who was a longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, he used to make his students take out one verse of Scripture, I think it was like Acts 1.8, and said, write down everything you can observe in this, in this passage. And in one verse, he came up with over 600 observations. But we don't do that. We just zip through the Bible reading plan, check off the box, done for the day, move on to something different. That's not how the Bible's supposed to be read. So if we read it properly, considering that we're going to savor what he has shared, one verse and one chapter at a time, I do believe we can learn to know God better. I really believe that with all of my heart. And we need to understand, too, that um, God has shared some things, but there are other things that he has willfully decided not to share with us. And sometimes we spend way too much time focusing on what he has not shared and not enough time on what he has shared. Here's an example that I give in in human terms. Uh, When I was growing up playing sports, you know, there were some guys on the basketball team that would start off practice launching three-pointers from half court, but they couldn't make layups. Why don't we start with some layups? You know what I mean? Let's, let's, let's get 10, 15 feet from the basket and make, some, and make some shots before we start launching, you know, three-point shots from half court like Stephon Curry. You know, like, let's, let's, let's keep our priorities in order. There's a lot of us that love to get into these huge arguments about sovereignty versus free will, and churches get ripped down the middle. Most of those churches that argue over these big issues, they all argue over the big stuff because they haven't got the small stuff in line yet. You know what I mean? That Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So let's focus on the things that God's revealed, that He's made clear, and not spend so much time focusing on the mysteries that He has not made clear. He is going to reveal more in time, I believe, in the new heavens and new earth. But there are some things about God that will always be a mystery, and we need to let God remain mysterious where he decided that he wanted to be made mysterious. You know, before I move on to point four, I was thinking about this this morning. In the ancient world, the way that you had power over somebody was that you fully knew them by their full name. If you could know somebody's full name and you could know everything about them, you would have power over them. 
In fact, uh, in the Gospels, have you ever noticed there's, there's some passages in the Gospels where demons call out to Jesus, what do you want to do with us, Jesus, Son of God, Son of the Most High God? And the first couple times I would read that, I would read it thinking, man, even the demons acknowledge that Jesus is God, that's great. But what they were doing was saying, I know exactly who you are, Jesus, I have power over you, because they were naming him by his full title. Well, I think one of the reasons God decided to give us a limit to what we can understand is we're never going to try to do that with God. We're never going to say, okay, I know everything there is to know about God because if I know his full name and I know everything about him, I can have power over him. He gives us enough to have a relationship, but he remains mysterious enough that we'll always worship. And I believe that's what God intends for us. Now, how do I know that? Well, we're going to move on to our next point and the great theologian Bruce Springsteen. All right. Number four, everybody's got a hungry heart, all right? Bruce said it truthfully, okay? I wouldn't quote Bruce Springsteen in many Bible studies. I love him as a musician. I don't care much for him as a politician or a theologian. He's a little bit too liberal for my taste. He's a great, he's a great musician, by the way. I don't want to get down a rabbit trail, but one of the best concerts I ever went to in North Carolina was a Bruce Springsteen concert. But one of the famous songs that he sang is, uh, everybody has a hungry heart, and guess what? Our hungry hearts prove... Not only that a God exists, but that there's a God that we can know because he created us to seek after him so that we can know him. Where do you think that hunger came from? It came from God. It came from God himself. The great French philosopher Blaise Pascal once said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. Do you know that? You have a God-shaped vacuum in your heart. And if you don't know God, you're going to try to fill it with something else. If you don't know God, you're going to try to fill it with money. Or you're going to try to fill it with sex. Or you're going to try to fill it with um, fill in the blank. You're going to try to fill it with children. And, and they're going to be the idol of your life. Or you're going to try to fill it with your job and you're going to work 80 hours a week. Or you're going to try to fill it with something else. God created your heart in such a way that you have a thirst that cannot be quenched except by Him Himself. And He did that so that we would seek after Him and also believe that as we seek Him that He can be found. That He can be known in some way and that we can have that relationship with Him. All right, another great theologian, uh, John L. Dagg, he's one of the first Southern Baptist theologians of the late 1800s. He wrote a book called The Manual of Theology in the late 1850s. Here's what he said. There have been tribes of men without literature and to a great extent without science and arts, but the notion of an invisible overruling power with some form of religious worship has been nearly or quite universal. Here's what that means. You can travel the world right now. And you can find people that don't own a book, people who've never been to a church, people who've never heard a sermon, and yet you can see people who are trying desperately to worship the Creator in some way. Now, that doesn't mean that they're worshiping right, <clears throat> rightly or that they know the same God that we do, but it says that God has put something in their heart that they're reaching out to something greater than themselves. Have you ever heard the expression, there's no atheists in foxholes? We always get to a time in our lives where we realize there's something or someone greater than us and we desire him even when we tell the world we don't believe he exists. God has wired human beings in such a way that we naturally reach out for a higher power. Now, most of us don't know the true higher power because they're not saved. And until you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you cannot know the one true God. But there's proof 
that he exists and he wants to be known because everyone's searching for something because we have a hungry heart. We have a hungry heart. All right, so as we move on to point five, trouble with handling the truth, there's another great theologian, Jack Nicholson, okay? Uh, A Few Good Men, another movie. If you remember that famous scene in the courtroom uh, where Tom Cruise is playing a lawyer in the Navy and he stands up and says, I want the truth. And Jack Nicholson stands up and says, you can't handle the truth. Well, guess what? There are some of you in this room right, right now saying, I want to know God. And God's saying, but you can't handle what you really want to know about me. And he's saying you can't handle it because you're already suppressing the truth that he's made plain. You're already suppressing it. It's something we struggle with as human beings. All right? One of the reasons why that even though he wants to be known, he's still not known, is first because we suppress the truth that he's already revealed. How do I know that? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. I'm not going to read the whole passage. But that passage says that we have ungodly lifestyles in such a way that we'd rather continue to live in our sin and ungodliness than turn to the light and know the truth. I'll give you another passage, and I'm actually going to read this one because... The beginning of it is the most famous passage in Scripture, which is what? John 3.16, most famous passage in all the Bible. Now, most of us know John 3.16, but you know John 3.19. Listen to 3.16 all the way through to 19. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So far, you're like, I'm tracking with you, Bo. I'm with you. I've heard this since I was five years old. All right? Now, keep listening. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now listen to verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because of their works of evil. Do you understand that Jesus is the light of the world? And since he came into the world, he made it possible for everyone to know God. The reason that we don't is because when he revealed light, we got under the covers and said, no, I'd rather stay in the dark. And that's the truth. Reminds me of my high school years, you know, uh, when my mother would come flying into my room in the morning because I was late for the school bus and she wanted to draw the shades up. And my first reaction was not to turn to the light and say, ah, another school day, mom. No, it was to turn and put the covers over my head and hit the snooze bar and continue to lay in darkness. That is why most of the world does not know God. Not because the information is not available. God made it freely available through his son and then through the written word for those that came after his son. But we suppress it. We don't want to know it. You know one of the reasons why people don't read the Bible? Is it a confusing book? Yeah, it takes time to study and understand the context. But on a subconscious level, people don't read the Bible because they know as soon as they read it, they're going to be held accountable. And they don't want to to know what they're going to read. Really, they don't want that conviction. And you may not know that on a conscious level, but on a subconscious level, if you read the Bible with an open heart saying, God, change me, He's going to show you things in your life that you need to change, and you may not want to. So the first reason why that we don't know him, even though God makes himself freely available, is we suppress the truth. Here's what James Montgomery Boyce, another great theologian in the the, uh, Presbyterian world, here's what he had to say about suppressing the truth. He said, 
Sufficient knowledge has been given about God for people to turn from themselves and their own way of life to God and begin to seek Him. But this knowledge, like a great spring, has been pressed down. Now the spring threatens to leap up and demolish the views and lifestyles of the one repressing it. So the person holds it down, suppressing it. The reason you don't read your Bible, the main reason why is if you do read it, it's going to make you change your life. And there are some things you're saying to God on a subconscious level, "Uh uh-uh, God, you can't have that. Uh Uh-uh, God, I don't want to change that right now. Uh Uh-uh, God, I'm just enjoying this a little bit too much. We as human beings, that's what we do. I mean, we really are sinful that way. So that's the first reason. Um, The second reason why, as we move on, casting pearls before pigs. Number six, the second reason that we don't know God is because of disobedience. We don't obey the truth that we already have. I mean, all of us right now, I've heard pastors say that we know more about the Bible than we'll ever tell somebody. Here's the question. Are you fully obedient to what you already do know? And if not, why are you saying to God, give me more, give me more, give me more, when he would say, you you got plenty to keep you busy right now. How are you obeying me with what you already have? And I think that's another reason why people stay in the dark and don't know God. The Bible warns us not to quench the Holy Spirit or grieve Him. Here's what that means. To quench the Holy Spirit means when the Spirit of God who lives inside of you is deeply convicting you of sin and calling you to confess and repent and you don't, eventually, if you don't listen to the voice of God long enough, you'll start to become numb and deaf to the voice. And that quenches Him. And it also grieves him. Quenching is what we do, and grieving is how the Holy Spirit responds when he's been quenched. He grieves that he cannot do what he wants to do because in some way God, in his great mercy, is not going to force us to obey him. He gives us the opportunity to work in unison with the Spirit to repent, believe, and obey. But if we will not listen to the Spirit of God, we will suppress the voice, we will quench him, and we will grieve him. And when that happens, God says, you know what? I got nothing more to tell you if you're not going to be faithful to what I've already given you. Jesus gives echoes of this idea throughout the scriptures, by the way, in the parable of the sower and the parable of the talents. Those are two parables in Matthew. One's in Matthew 13, the other's in Matthew 25. One of the main points of those parables is to those who have, more will be given. And to those who have not, what they have is going to be taken from them. In other words, if you have and you're not using it, God's going to take it from you. But if you have and you're using, He's going to give you more. All right, well, the the main thing that we have that we need to use is knowledge of God. If you're being faithful to what God has revealed about Himself, He'll give you more knowledge of who He is, and you'll grow in more intimacy with Him. But if you refuse to repent and confess, you will not grow in your knowledge of God. Your disobedience will keep you in a state of immaturity of which you'll never grow from. All right, And that's one reason why Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before pigs. Don't give what's holy and precious about God, mainly knowledge of Him, to those who, like pigs, will trample on pearls and won't fully appreciate it. And the other thing He says is, because it's only the pure in heart who will truly see God. Is that not what He says in Matthew 5, 8? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, this does not mean that we're perfect, but it means we're striving towards 
faith. We're striving towards working at our salvation with fear and trembling. We're staying in a state of repentance and faith where we're staying close to God and we're confessing sin and we're, we're seeking His grace. So that moves us on to number seven. The results of rejecting revelation. All right, so we said that as human beings, we don't fully know God because we suppress the truth and then we disobey the truth that we already know. Well, what happens when we do that? I'm going to give you four realities. You can see them in your, stu- in your listening guide. These, all of these are miserable realities, but I'm going to start with the best case scenario and move down to the worst. All right, the best case scenario of someone who is not being obedient to God is they may be believers, but they're going to be very immature Christians. All right, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14 talks about being babes on the milk. You ever heard that expression? That we never get onto solid foods. And this hurts my heart almost more than anything else, and I'm going to tell you why. Week after week, I preach and I study and I pray and I say, God, how can I simplify this truth in such a way that someone who's new to the Bible will understand it? And let me tell you what happens almost every week. I look out into the sanctuary and I can see a new Christian fully understand what I'm saying. And I can also see someone who's been coming to church for 30 years looking at me like I'm speaking Chinese. And the reason why is they've been so disobedient for so long, they're babies and they've never grown up. And these are some people who've been in the church 30 and 40 years. When you talk about the Old Testament, like I talked about sacrificing animals, they've been reading the Bible 40 years and they've got no clue what I'm talking about. That's not intellectual. It's spiritual. They don't know because they don't want to know because they're not being faithful to the Lord. And that burdens my heart to, to see these quimsical looks. Now, granted, every pastor needs to work at being a good communicator. Sometimes I get those looks because I just need to do a better job of explaining, okay? All of us could do better. But sometimes, after 40 years of being a Christian, you don't understand the Bible because you're just not being faithful to what you do understand. So immature Christianity is a result. But it gets worse after this. The second is idolatry. All right, Romans chapter 1, verse 25 says that if we don't know God, we're going to replace Him with something else. Mainly, we're going to replace Him with a false religion, another person, another object, or another experience. All right, idolatry is what happens when the human heart needs God, and when you don't know the one true God, you replace Him with a false God. I talked about that before. We, my false God, up until the point I got saved, and even after I was saved, was sports. I mean, I was a sports junkie. I worked in professional baseball, and when I had an off day, I would go to another ballpark and watch another game. I couldn't get enough. It was bad enough I had to watch the first sports center. I watched the second and third and fourth over and over. It's the same episode repeated. But I'd watch the 10:30 and the 11 o'clock and the 11:30 and the midnight. It was ridiculous. Why? Because I needed that sports fix because I knew that I didn't know God, but I knew that I had a hunger that needed to be filled, and so I sought Him through sports. Again, some of you do it through money. Some of you do it through family. Some of you do it through work. I don't know what it is, but we need to be careful because the heart will always seek to fill the void, and if you don't know God, you'll replace Him with something that's not God. It's part of how we're wired and so if we don't know God, not only will we be immature, but we'll fall into idolatry. These are the last two. These are even worse scenarios. Third is agnosticism. Agnosticism, in Acts chapter 17, there's a story where Paul is on mission. 
And uh, he's basically explaining to these philosophers, you say that you are worshiping the unknown God, but guess what? I know who this God is. Agnosticism is trying to be noncommittal about who God is or even knowing God. An agnostic would say, you can't know God. He may exist, but he may not exist. The fact that remains, you can't know either way. So at this point, on this side of heaven, we're just going to leave our, our, our hands up in the air and try to stay neutral and say, maybe there's a God, but you can't know for sure. Well, that's sinful ignorance. And those people will go to hell. And they will be separated from God forever because they thought they could be neutral. And guess what? Christ says, you're either for me or against me. There is no middle ground. You're going to hear one of two things when you die. You're going to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Or you're going to hear, depart from me, for I never knew you. All right? There is no neutral ground with God. You either know him or you don't. And agnostics, basically, they're noncommittal because they feel like if they stay neutral, they're not going to be accountable. But you can't avoid accountability. God's a perfect judge, and he will judge all people. All right? And if you're not for him, you will be against him. And that leads us to the fourth reality, and that's atheism. And the Bible has a lot to say about atheism. In, in Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1, it says over and over and over, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When you become an atheist, what you've done is you've suppressed the truth of God so passionately that you could actually walk outside and realize that a God exists and say, ah, nothing, God didn't create this. This is just uh, nature that created itself through a big bang. I don't know how all this came to be, but what I do know, there is no such thing as an intelligent designer. All this just kind of happened. That is the ultimate blindness of our sin where we suppress the truth to the point where we don't even think a God exists. And trust me, it's scary, but it happens. There's plenty of people in this world that believe that there is no God. And that's the ultimate reality of somebody who rejects revelation. The ultimate reality. So that leads me to our eighth and final point. So seek Him like silver. All right. So the Bible tells us, God, you can't fully know Him. But yet, He wants to be known in, in the way that He's revealed Himself. So how should we respond? Go after Him. Because He went after you. All right. Here's what Scripture says. Uh, David told his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28.9, towards the end of his life, he said, to search God with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Solomon heard that, and he himself said in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, that we should seek God's wisdom like silver and search for it like hidden treasures, that we too would find the true knowledge of our Creator if we search for Him fervently and we're willing to obey what it is that we found when we searched Him. All right? I really believe this. If you say, God, I want to know you and I'll do whatever it takes... And when you show me more about you, I'll be obedient to what you do show me. When that happens, you will have a knowledge of God that you've never had before. It does, you don't need theological training, okay? Bible studies are great. We're, we're discipling each other, but you don't need to go to a seminary, all right? You don't need to be a scholar. You don't need to know how to read Greek or Hebrew, all right? You don't have to be an expert in the Bible. What you do have to have is this, a willing heart to seek Him, and then a heart to obey Him when He reveals Himself to you. And if you constantly seek after Him and then obey what He has revealed, your knowledge of God will continue to grow over and over and over and over to the point that when you begin to talk about God to other people, they'll look at you and say, surely he or she walks with God. They know Him because He's doing magical things in their life. 
The power of God is present in their home. It's present in their work. They're changing. They're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. I, I, this God has hit me between the eyeballs with this because I'm someone who loves to study theology, mainly because I want to know God. Theology is the study of God. I, I don't just want to know facts. I want to know a person. That I have all these theology books and all the years of studying at seminary and Bible college and all this information that's been crammed into my brain. And what I want to say is this. What, would I ever get to a point where God says, I'm not going to show any more of me to you because you're not being faithful to what you know. And so I've been praying a lot lately. God, is there anything that's keeping me from knowing more of you? And you know what? God's revealed some things that are. Some sin that needs to be confessed. And, and turned away from uh, relationships that need to be restored. You know, I, I see in Scripture all the time where these people want to do all types, all types of spiritual things, and, and God says, take care of the problem before you try to go any further. You know, when I think about um, taking the Lord's Supper, you know, Paul says, hey, make it right with the people that you're in conflict with and then come back to the table. You know, you want more of God, but you're not taking care of the situation that's already before you. If you really want to know God, think about God in the context of your life right now. All right? Think about what you do know about God right now. If God were to come and speak to you in an audible voice, what do you think He would tell you that you need to change in your life? What sin would you need to confess? What relationship would you need to restore? What priority would you need to change? I want you to think about that because if you're willing to be obedient to that right now, I have it it in the authority of the Word of God. He will reveal more of Himself to you. Not some secret knowledge, okay? I'm talking about what's in here. Because we have enough in here to keep us busy till Christ comes back. But what He'll do is open your heart and mind to what's already been revealed through, through the Word and the Holy Spirit. He will show it to you. How many of you who've been reading the Bible for decades, you'll come across a verse you've seen 10,000 times. I see Jim Savage shaking his head. You've seen a verse 10,000 times, and all of a sudden, you were reading the passage, and you're like, oh my goodness, I've never seen this before. I've, I've never seen this. Do you know why that is? That's the Spirit of God deepening your understanding of, of, of our Lord. He's, he's taking you deeper because you're willing to be faithful. And that's a sweet time. That's when devotional time in the morning is sweet. When, when you're opening the Word and you're seeing things. Now, I almost don't want to tell you this because I'll get laughs and I'll have people that are going to tr- really hold me accountable to this. But I've told Dave and Melanie this because they're holding me accountable. And I, I think I violated this this morning. But in the past two weeks, God has given me one main message and it's come through almost everything I've been reading. And you know what the message is? Bo, be more careful with your words. Say what you need to say and say it clearly. And, you know, I think part of that is to be more concise in my sermons. Okay? I'm waiting for James Crooms to say a big amen. And he's not here. That's right. (laughs) Uh, But even in my daily conversations, when I go home to my wife at 5 o'clock, how many things do I complain about that are not helpful? Where God is saying, you know what, Bo, you need to learn some self-control. You need to be a rock she can lean on. And maybe it's not helpful for you to vent a frustration. Maybe you, maybe you need to give that to me instead of venting to your wife. This is what God has been all over me about in the, next, the last, two, last two weeks. Bo, be more concise with your words. You know, I, I don't want to embarrass him, but uh, I've, I've mentioned this on more than one occasion. 
uh, one of the men in this room that I greatly uh, admire is George Gwiff because he, he hardly ever says anything. But man, if you ever heard him talk about the Bible, that man knows the word. I mean, it pours out of him because he spends nine out of 10 minutes listening and one minute speaking. I want to be more like that. Now, I have a job that requires me to speak. All right. And I actually do enjoy it. So I don't think God's telling me to completely be quiet. I hope not. I don't want to hear single amen in this room right now. But what I do know what he's saying to me right now is guard my tongue. Make every word count. You know, David Sykes, after I had already read this in the Bible for two straight weeks, David Sykes came to this church and preached Baptist Men's Day, and he said that God put him on voice rest to the point where he could only use 10 words per hour. And God said, Bo, are you listening? What would your life look like if you only had 10 words an hour? It'd look a lot different than it does right now. But God's got my attention. I've got to work on that. And I can't do it in my own strength. But I think God's going to help me to be more faithful with my words. What is it for you? When you sit with God and you read the word, what is he telling you? What is he teaching you? Maybe, maybe you need to just read one chapter a morning and sit under the, the word of God along with the spirit of God and let him speak to you. And as you obey what you hear, you will come to know the unknowable one.